Welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, this episode will be the second of three episodes looking at a handful of Lovecraft's poetry from the period um, kind of during and immediately after World War I, uh, where he published quite a lot of poetry. Um, some of his most famous poems come, come a little bit later, but as I talked about in the last episode and we'll continue here, I think these poems are very, very thematically tied to the fiction works uh, we've already been talking about. Some of them are quite good, some of them are fairly forgettable, but I think as, as Lovecraft readers, these are, these are some of the poems maybe we should, we should be at least aware of, know about, um, because they do speak to some of the, the themes. Um, now, there's a, there's a whole bunch of um, kind of historical and and World War One poems that I'll look at in the next episode. So I'm kind of saving those for a separate episode where I can look at them together. They kind of deal with Anglo-Americanism, the war, and those kinds of themes that it'll be kind of stuff we've already talked about, of course, but from a different angle, looking at his, his poetry. These are going to be closer to the poems we've already looked at. Um, you know, horror poetry, if you want to call it that. A lot of themes about kind of the indifference, the futility of life, the futility of, of human understanding. Actually, quite a few kind of re-explore re that same theme of people who, who, through some kind of sudden revelation, have a changed perspective about something mundane, um, like, a, like a city or a, or a house or something profound like, like the stars and the cosmos. But in all cases, there's this shift from... Um, the banal to to a more horrific and, and vast and, and terrifying reality. Okay, so let's let's uh, let's jump into the poems that I want to look at today. Um, we finished off last time with despair, so this time it's going to be Revelation. Revelation was first published in the Tryout in March 1919. It was written also March 1919. So here we're given a, a pastoral, almost Hellenic uh, scene uh, in the first few stanzas of the poetry. Uh, I'll give you one stanza as an example. Green and narrow was my valley, tempered with a verdant shade. Sun-decked brooklets musically sparkled through each glorious glade. And at night the stars seemingly glowed betwixt the bows overheard, overheard while Ast Astarte, calm and queened, floods of fairy radiance shed. So he's kind of in a forest dwelling, and then he, he begins to explore the sky. So it's kind of a story of exploration, a poem of exploration. He starts to clear away the branches. So he tears away at the branches till he can see the sky. He sees the, quote, naked skies of Jove. And with this, he understands suddenly the futility of his existence, the meagerness of his, his reach. Quote, uh, vain I watch the golden orbs thronging round celestial poles of light, madly on a moonbeam ladder, Heaven's abyss I sought to scale, ever wiser, ever sadder, as a fruitless task would fail. Um, and then this, this kind of uh, feeling of, of insignificance morphs into a horror, to horror and terror in the final stanza. So he kind of talks about his soul going up into the sky and experiencing the greatness of the universe. And then the terror comes as he returns to Earth. And uh, this is what he sees. Um, Slopes in hideous torment burning, terror in the brooklets tied for the dell of shade denuded by my um, discrerating hand neath the bare sky blazed and brooded as a lost, accursed land. 
So this is the poem he, he wrote in, in various forms throughout this period. Someone uh, experiencing something that, that we experience every day, but, but, but because of their perspective, like maybe never seen it before or because of previous isolation, they can kind of experience the totality of the universe and their, the humanity's own insignificance within it. Uh, the poem is, after all, called Revelation. So it's a nice one. I think it's, it's not necessarily giving us anything we haven't seen before in these poems, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a rather nice one. I, I think the, the mood of this, of this kind of um, forest, you know, Hellenic scene is, is quite nice at the beginning. All right. Um, next, The House. Um, the House uh, was written in July 1919, published in December 1919 in, in National Enquirer. So this is just a description of a house. And according to my notes here, the notes that this editor put there, it was the inspiration for the story, The Shunned House. So uh, this editor says 135 Benefit Street and Plaza was, or in Providence was the inspiration for this story, The Shunned House. Um, the Leslie Klinger edition, which I have open right now, um, talks about the story first written in 24, published in 28. It gives various possibilities here, including 135 Benefit Street, but some other houses nearby which might have been the, the shunned house. But this is, this is a story we'll get to. It's, it's rather a fun one that, um, you know, basically via house, people experience the insignificance of, of, of man's place in the universe in a way. Um, basically, there's a big monster kind of buried underneath the house somehow. Uh, but that story is just really good at just kind of the creepy house kind of a vibe. And this poem... Uh, which is four stanzas, just gives that vibe. It just gives the vibe of, of an old, kind of beautiful house with a past. Uh, Lovecraft tries to describe the scents that are there. It's not really horrible. I mean, it's not a horror poem in any sense. It's just describing a house that seems to have captivated our, our author here. And kind of the story here is... He describes the house, and then sometime later, hot June time, um, he looks at a picture of the house, and he kind of re-experiences the, the time being there. Um, so he's got a past with the house, but the house also, also has its past, which is kind of accessible in part through the observations of, of the house. For instance, uh, of the sweet scent of the blossoms rise odors of numberless days. Um, later on, uh, rank grass are waving on terrace and lawn, dim memory savoring of things that have gone. The stones of the walks are encrusted and wet in a strange steered stalks when the red sun had set, and the soul of the watcher is filled with faint pictures he fain would forget. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the house. But uh, maybe it's something we can think about when we go back to, to, uh, to the Shunned House story. Okay, so next is The City, uh, October 1918 in The Vagrant, both written and published that, that, that month. So this poem is it's kind of almost a first draft of Polaris, um, and that, that's how I'm going to approach it. it was, Polaris was written the next year, 
1920, and this was written before, but the themes and the story is very, very similar to, to Polaris. Uh, so we start out with a, a, a city of light kind of access via the sky, right? So it was a golden splendor, that city of light, a vision suspended in the deeps of, depth, depths, deeps of night, a region of wonder and glory whose temples were marble and white. I remember the season, it dawned on my gaze, a mad time of unreason, uh, brain-numbing days when winter white-sleeted ghastly stalks onward to torture and craze. More lovely than Zion, it shone in the sky when the beams of Orion beclouded my eyes, bringing sleep that was filled with the uh, memories of moments obscure and days gone. So like Polaris, we have a suggestion of, of kind of visions from the sky and then coming through to the narrator via dreams. Those are both uh, themes in Polaris. Then we get a description of the city, its architecture, its mansions, its avenues, its arches, its plazas. Then we get a close-up of some statues. Uh, quote, on the palazzo we're standing, a sculpture array, long-bearded commanding grave men in their day, but one stood dismantled and broken, its bearded face battered away. So we have one broken statue, um, but there's no people. So it's a fallen city. So that way it's like Sarnath or the city in Polaris, a, a city that's been destroyed by something. Now we don't get a description of what that is. Um, we just got memories laws here and another kind of, you know, that kind of, makes me think of Lovecraftian themes there, the depths of memory and, and how Lovecraft is such a such a stickler about needing to forget things. Um, now, occasionally he does talk about the need to remember, but often he's anxious about remembering things. Um, but uh, anyways, then finally, at the end, the final stanza, uh, the soul the, that's kind of experiencing these dreams, uh, flees from the knowledge of terrors forgotten and dead. So it tries to forget what he has seen. So not quite like Polaris, what's missing here, like in Polaris, you see how this civilization falls. We have the dreamer actually playing a role in that fall and that collapse in that final Titanic battle. Here we just have someone who's dreaming through via a star, via the sky, experiencing some other civilization long gone. And then, um, I think key here is this theme of forgetting because we have in one, one stanza towards the end, the third to last stanza, to memory's law linger long on forms in the plaza and eyed their stone features with awe. But at the very end again, and in panic I flew from the knowledge of terrors forgotten and dead. So you have this uh, kind of fascination and curiosity and, 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 and beauty uh, turning into fear and, and this deep desire to forget. Um, so, yeah, I think this is a this is a pretty good poem, and I think the way it kind of pairs nicely with Polaris makes it an important one to to perhaps look at. Um, there's a couple poems here I'm just going to skip because they're about Lord Dunsany, and I didn't like the Poe one, so I just skipped those. But that's okay. Um, next, uh, Nightmare Lake. December 1919, In the Vagrant again. Um, yeah, published and written both in December 1919. So this poem is a straight up kind of uh, natural horror story where uh, we get a, a lake and a distant Zan. I don't know, is that some kind of dreamland's place? I guess we can look out for that place. Uh, it seems to have just been made up for, for the purpose of the poem. Um, and we have, uh, it's got this ancient spirit and an ancient memory. 
Something's been there long before, but it's all gone now. Instead, we get uh, dull waters, dense waters, vapors with pestilence, mires of clay, sprawl things offensive into decay. I don't know. So we got this decaying world, right? And it's, it's this lake. It's just a stagnant lake. That's me described here. And if you've ever been next to one, you know the sense, you know the, the scene, and, and you got all the algae. It's, it's kind of like when, um, when, a, when a lake gets too much like organic matter, right? When it decays, that's a oxygen-consuming process, right? So that kind of drains the oxygen from the water, and that kills the fish. And, and on this is something ecologists sort of worry about. Maybe that's what's happened here. But Lovecraft's just doing a really, really great job at this poem of, of digging into the, the kind of the grotesqueness and the horror of this decaying, stagnant lake. We also have lots of creatures here, which is great. Um, uh, I saw follow things these marshes bore. Lakes, lizards and snakes convulsing and dying. Ravens and vampires putrefying. All these and hovering over the dead. Narcophagi that on them feed. So then he's able to sort of see into the lake. like this, It almost like sinks. And then he kind of sees what's underneath it. Um, quote, I saw the lake's dull water glow till sunken things appeared below. There shone unnumbered fathoms down the towers of a forgotten town. The tarnished dorms and mossy walls. So, you know, whether it's uh, Dagon or the temple, maybe the temple, this reminds me more of a little bit, a story we'll look at shortly. You kind of have a ancient civilization that's sort of been buried by water and, and revealed. Um, so then we get the man-made stuff. So however horrific the water is, the creatures of the, of the lake, when it's revealed that there's a civilization underneath it far older than man, then, then that's really, really creepy, right? At least for, at least for someone like Lovecraft. Um, and then we have the end, uh, a call to forget, another demand to forget what has been seen. Um, he writes... No ear may learn, no tongue may tell what nameless horror bef therein befell. I see the lake, that moon again, that city and the things within. Walking, I pray that on the shore the nightmare lake may sink no more. So uh, praying that it will never be revealed or seen again. All right, so next. Um, that's, uh, this one was, this is in a different set of this collection of, of poems. I think everything we've looked at up to this point has been under the set, the chapter, if you will, fantasy and horror, right? Um, so this is under the chapter called Occasional Verse, and there's only three um, poems in this section. Uh, one's, one's a poem he writes to Robert Kleiner after getting a picture of swans. It's, it's not that important to look at. But this one is. Uh, it was published in the tryout in February 1917, written in February 1917, called Fact and Fancy. And this is, um, I don't know, it's kind of, it does something that I think supernatural horror and literature does. Um, and I think it does it fairly explicitly there as well, but it, it's here. It's basically saying there's nothing wrong with the fantastic versus the factual in terms of aesthetics or, or pleasure or, or for literature. I mean, he starts out saying it basically in the first line of the poem, how dull the, how dull the wretch whose philosophic mind disdains the pleasure of fantastic kind whose prosy thoughts of joy of life exclude and wreck the solace of the poet's mood. So if you've read supernatural horror literature, you know he has this idea that, that like the supernatural terror, horror, 
it's not necessarily for everyone, but it's for a certain sensitive type, right? And that those sensitive types, they can't have their full aesthetic human experience through literature through the realistic alone, right? And he actually kind of condemns those people who kind of insist on the realistic. So even 20 years later, when he's writing supernatural horror and literature, he has the same idea that there's nothing wrong with the fantastic. And of course, this is true. If you're listening to this podcast, you obviously agree with Lovecraft on this. And he's absolutely 100% right not to scorn. So when your kid is reading that, you know, silly horror novel or fantasy novel or something, you know, let him do it. Don't, don't tell him what to read. Uh, don't tell him, you know, put that down and read a boring history book. Um, so... Yeah, and then we got different um, examples he gives of Zeno uh, rejecting language. So he gives examples of creativity, essentially, from the classic world. Right in a poem, of course, he goes to the classics. So he mentioned Zeno, Ovid, um, obviously another poet. Um, he says, like, uh, freezes poor Ovid in an iced review and sneers because his fables aren't true. But in search for truth, the hopeful zealot goes, but all the sadder turns the more he knows. So he kind of suggests here there's a bit of a dead end towards the tr just just exploring the realistic and the truthful, right? I do think there was some Greek philosophy on this point. Was it was it Plato who kind of rejected didn't like fiction because it would be a crude reflection of reality? I mean, reality already is a reflection, a crude reflection of the forms, right? So fiction would just be another reflection of that. So even farther from the forms, but whatever. That is a nice little defense of the creative, defense of fantasy um, against the ideologues of realism. All right. Um, in the same section called uh, incidental verse or occasional verse, we get Leita a Lament. This is dedicated to Reinhard um, Kitchener. Uh, this was written in February 1919, published in the tryout in February 1919. And this... I'm not going to say too much about it. Um, simply, it you might want to read it, though, just to be a Lovecraft completionist, if that's your thing. It's, it's a nice little love story written and dedicated to a, to a friend. Sorry, there was a little bit of a gap there in time because my, my cat is on my table and interrupting this recording. But... Um, Hopefully it won't be too disruptive. Um, so the last poem I'm going to talk about in this episode is uh, under the chapter in this book called Satire. Um, I actually find it kind of a nice poem. I, I, don't, I didn't read it really as a satire, um, but maybe it is satirizing certain forms or styles or kind of maybe Scottish poetry. Um, I don't know. It's called Unda or the Bride of the Sea. And I'm very interested in this one simply because it's dealing with the sea, which I think is very, very important for understanding Lovecraft. Uh, this was written actually way back in September 1915, published in the Providence Amateur um, in February 1916. So um, it's so it starts out. We're in Scotland. At least I think we are. Um, the first line is "Black looms the crags of the uplands behind me. Dark are the sands of the far-reaching shore." But anyways, we're in Scotland on the shore. That's, that's where I think we are. Um, and he's hearing the 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 ocean. Uh, while he's with Unda, the bride of the sea, and they're, they're lovers. And with the, the Unda and the narrator are lovers. 
and she's got her head on his shoulder. And then he thinks about all the, how he met her. Um, quote, bright was the morn of my youth when I met her. Sweet, sweet as the breeze that blew in over the brine. Swift was I captured in love's strongest fetter. Glad to be hers, and she glad to be mine. Um, there's no discussion here of the past, so they kind of isolate the past. They don't talk about each other's past. Instead, they're just happy, quote, with the bounty of earth and ocean. Um, they talk about how he plays a little bit, uh, the, the, her, her, the stuff in her hair, um, and more just them living on the cliffs near the, near the water. But Unda has this strange fascination with the sea. Quote, strangely she gazed on the surges beneath her, charmed by the sound or entrance by the light. Then did the waves of wild aspect bequeath her, stern as the ocean and weird as the night. And then being drawn by the sea, she leaves him. Um, coldly she left me, astonished and weeping, standing alone amid the regions she blessed. Down ever downward, half gliding, half creeping, stole the sweet Unda in oceanward quest. And then there's a couple stanzas basically about his isolation, his abandonment, and his searching for her. He searches all over. He searches the whole wide world, um, scouring deserts, sailing distant seas, uh, searching for her. Uh, so he's on this quest to, to look for her. We get some really nice astronomy here as he's, he's kind of wandering the world. Um, Lo, the red moon from the ocean's low hazes rises in ominous grandeur to view. There's actually quite a bit of astronomy in this. This, this poem, but there's a lot more C. C is a lot more dominant. But in the last few stanzas, we shift more to the sky. And the moon, there's this wonderful stanza, I just love this, where he sees the, the moonlight forming this kind of bridge. Uh, quote, straight from the moon to the shore where I'm sighing, sighting, I think, sighing, sorry. Straight from the moon to the shore where I'm sighing grows a bright bridge made of wavelets and beams. Frail may it be, and yet how simple to try and wandering from earth to the orb of sweet dreams. Um, so he becomes kind of bewitched by these moonbeams, and he begins to follow it, um, seeking Unda. Um, and as he's doing that, we get this line. This is the final stanza of the poem proper. Murmuring waters around me closing, soft the sweet visions advance to me. Done are my trials, my heart is reposing, safe with my unda, the bride of the sea. So he drowns in the water, and and that's it. He's back with unda. So that's a, a fairly nice little poem. But I think where it becomes a satire uh, is in the epilogue, where Lovecraft writes, As the rash fool, a prey of unda's art, drowned through the passion of his fevered heart, so are the youth inflamed by tempers fair, bereft of reason and the manly air, and how sad the sight of Strephon's viral grace turned to confusion at his Chloe's face. So he's basically saying that this is what happens to boy, young boys when they get kind of enamored with a girl. So that's that kind of what makes it a satire, but that, take that out of it is a really, I think, nice poem where we have the sea and we have someone kind of being on a quest for this lost love, we have a woman from the sea who returns to it. Really nice uh, kind of Lovecraftian motifs there. But, you know, Lovecraft turns it into a morality tale about not getting too um, girl crazy. So, <clears throat> yeah, that's it. So, next episode, we will finish up with the poetry from this period. We won't be done with poetry, of course. Lovecraft wrote a lot more in his life. Um, 
we have here um, his World War One poems, like a pacifist war song. His poem, his poems about England. Uh, and I'll kind of wrap up. There's a few more things to say about race in some of these other writings, which I didn't get to yet. So I'll kind of wrap up this series on Lovecraft's incidental non-short non story writings from the period before 1921 uh, in the next episode. And then we'll be jump right back into the stories. And it's going to be the longest kind of chunk of stories. Uh, I think there's like 27, 28 stories in the next period. It was kind of his most, maybe not in bulk, but in just a number of stories, it was his most productive um, period um, from 1921 to 1924. So uh, I look forward to getting into those stories. I look forward to talking a little bit more about World War I and Lovecraft's, uh, by looking at Lovecraft's poetry from that, that period and about the war. And, and I think there's a poem to Robert E. Lee, which we should look at too. So uh, that is it for now. So if you have any your own thoughts about these particular poems, Wounded the Bride of the Sea, or Revelations, or The City, or The House, or any of those. Uh, let Nightmare Lake, that's a nice one. Uh, let me know what you think of those poems. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, so that'll be it for now. See you next time with uh, when I'll be looking at a few more poems. <laughs>